Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Grow Show. This episode with Seth Godin was definitely one of our favorites so far. People call him the godfather of modern marketing and one of the best marketing brains on the planet. So whether you're a big Seth Godin fan or really just enjoyed this episode, which we know you're going to, we want to give you the quick heads up that you can see Seth speak live at the annual inbound event produced by HubSpot right here in Boston in September. We got a special discount for Growth Show listeners. So if you head over to inbound.com and use the promo code Growth Show, all one word, you can get $100 off. Seth was awesome on the podcast. He's even better in person. So make sure you head over to inbound.com, use the code Growth Show, and when you get your ticket, you'll save $100. Making decisions takes time and energy. And if you can make a decision once, then the question isn't, should I do it? It's, what will I do? So if you make the decision once to be a vegan, then you don't have to have a discussion with yourself every single night about whether to have a hamburger or not. And if you make a decision uh, to blog every single day, then the only discussion I have to have with myself is what's the best blog I can do, not should I do a blog. As, as Lauren Michaels has possibly said, Saturday Night Live doesn't go on because it's ready, it goes on because it's 11.30. We are right at the cusp something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show, produced by Dave Gerhardt. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot, and today I'm joined by Seth Godin. He's an entrepreneur, a marketer, an author, a speaker, someone I respect a ton, have had an opportunity to hear speak multiple times, and I've met him a few times. Uh, fantastic individual with lots of great thoughts. People have called him sort of, the, I'd like to call him the godfather of inbound marketing, uh, but he certainly, I think, has influenced marketing for the past couple decades. Uh, and he's definitely one of the best marketing and sort of growth brains on the planet. So, Seth, thanks a lot for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure, and I promise not to put a horse head in your bed. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so, for uh, you've been, I think most people sort of know who you are, but I don't know if there's anything that I sort of missed. You've, uh, you've written a lot of different books uh, that have definitely influenced me as, as a marketer and someone trying to grow companies over the years. Um, you know, anything else that you want to point out to the audience about who, what they should know about you? Well, you know, I think that the easiest way for someone like me to get started is to talk about tactics and the shifts in the environment, but I find myself focusing more and more on the choices we make internally on how we decide what matters. And I think that that drives the tactics we choose to use. Uh, for me, one of the worst sentences I can ever hear is, I'm just doing my job. I would like to banish that from our vocabulary. Yeah, let's talk more about that. So let's talk about the, let's start with the internal side of things. So, you know, you've talked a lot about sort of, you know, that the companies and brands that sort of win today are really those ones sort of that people trust and they're kind of built on trust. Let's talk more about that. What, what do you need to do in terms of your team and yourself to make sure that you're not sort of doing these gimmicky things, but you're really sort of building your company and building your brand and sort of taking those customer interactions and, and taking the, and building them from a place of trust? Well, you know, they say if you can fake trust, you can fake anything. And I think that's a bad strategy, that we have to start by understanding we need to hire people who we can trust, then we need to trust them. We need to choose customers that we can trust, and then we need to trust them. Most 
entrepreneurs don't think about the idea of choosing their customers. But of course we do. And that means that if you create an environment where selfish, short-term, untrustworthy customers are satisfied, that's who you're going to get. And making the choice to say, I want to make this kind of work for these kinds of people, telling this sort of story, allows you to be consistent. You know, part of the challenge of the growth hacker mindset of, you know, tricking search engines and tricking people and tricking your way to followers and tricking and tricking and tricking is it looks like it gets you where you want to go. But what you've ended up doing is building a foundation based on trickery and it's very hard to maintain that. Whereas if you start by saying, this is who I am, this is what I do, I hope you like it, you're way more likely to build a structure that can last. It seems like in one way of thinking about it, that, that might be extremely difficult because it's you're putting maybe yourself on a road that's going to be a lot harder, maybe a much steeper hill. Any examples of companies that you think have done a good job of sort of embracing that trust philosophy and doing things from sort of a place of authenticity? Well, you know, if we're looking for giant famous companies, I can pick all of them. <laughs> so, you know, Zappos got to where they got basically a shoe store on the internet when there were 10,000 shoe stores on the internet by trusting its customers, no questions asked, no time limit, here's all your money back. Um, that companies like Starbucks didn't even serve coffee when they only had two stories, stores. They only served coffee beans. And it was a very incremental, passion-driven process where lots of people who walked into a Starbucks the first five years walked out saying, I don't like this. Right? That, and that, that's sort of the opposite of what happens to all the competitors that saw what Starbucks were, was building and tried to build a crowd-pleasing, bottom-fishing alternative. Uh, we can see business-to-business uh, organizations. I would include HubSpot in that group. I would include um, Rackspace in that group. When you call Rackspace, you don't get put on hold and the phone doesn't get answered by somebody who doesn't speak English. Who You have to somehow cajole into connecting you to someone who will help you. It gets answered by a level two trained engineer, which costs them a lot, which means that if you want the cheapest place, you're not going to hire them and that's fine with them. You're sort of a big proponent of, of not being the cheapest. I think at other times I've heard you talk a lot too about not necessarily wanting to be the biggest and that there's some value in, in maybe being small and having something special for a smaller market. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How does And it seems like that to many degrees kind of plays into this whole authenticity and trust and the, and the passion that you were just talking about. Sure. Let me first insert that there is an alternative to being the cheapest, which is to be free. And I'm a huge, probably the first proponent of free. Uh, when I gave away Unleashing the Idea Virus, a book I wrote, which is still free, uh, it got shared 3,000 times the first day, and now it's up to 3 million, 5 million times. But I made more money on the thing I gave away for free than if I had even asked for an email address. Because the biggest challenge most organizations have is obscurity, not piracy. And so the, the engine that free provides us, if it's truly valuable without undermining what we actually want to do for a living, is it enables us to interact with people. But then, as you pointed out, there's this next question, which is, what is the purpose of big? And if you are a public company, often your shareholders have signed up for 
you must grow at 10% to infinity. Um, but not all of us run public companies. And so the question is, is more the point or is better the point? And better can take the form of more profit per employee, or it could take the form of more impact per customer, or it could take the form of doing well enough and doing work that you are proud of. And we have seen uh, musicians, ad agencies, uh, freelancers, specialty firms, and doctors all make the choice to be better as opposed to bigger. And sometimes I see talented people who go on television in the search for ever more fame. And what they do is they keep trading down, dumbing down, trying to pander until they have, what, the most famousness? And it's not clear that the most famousness makes them the happiest. Well, and I think beyond maybe making them the happiest too, it's like how effective is it? You know, when you have four, five, 10, 20 million Twitter followers or whatever the metric is that you look at or the number of people that are paying attention to you, you know, how many of them are truly engaged and really respect you, right? Versus are just sort of uh, following on because they're, everyone else is sort of following on. I think, that, I think there's a lot to be said for that where, you know, maybe you have a much smaller audience, but they're much more highly engaged and you have this deeper connection with them. And, and when you ask them for things or they ask you for things, there's a much stronger connection. It's, it's those relationships can be a lot more valuable, I think. Exactly. You know, four years ago, five years ago, I stopped doing seeking outbound publicity. I stopped counting how many people were following me on Twitter. I stopped trying to make blog posts that would be popular. And once I made those decisions, in addition to being happier, my work got better because I wasn't saying to myself, oh, can I put up a list of the nine things every entrepreneur should know about blank because that'll be a surefire winner. Instead, I said, for the readers I have, for the people who are already counting on me, what's the best I can deliver to them? And that idea of taking care of a core group of people, and one day maybe they'll tell a friend, it's fundamentally different than this idea of the short-term hustle. And the internet has never made it easier to do the short-term hustle. And I think that the evidence is in that the short-term hustle doesn't lead to the results that most people expect. Yeah, well, to your point, it is the short-term hustle, right? And yep. you know, we're all here for the long-term. Talking about the long-term, you mentioned your blog, you mentioned Twitter. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. So you've been blogging, I think, for 10 years now. I, why? I mean, that was an early time to start. Why did you start blogging? How did you get into it? And I have a lot more questions to ask about your blog because I think it's fascinating. Well, actually, 20 years ago, I started an email newsletter. Um, and the email newsletter was every week or so. And then, I don't remember where, but there was a, a blog somewhere else, uh, probably before they were called blogs. And then I went to a conference where I met Joey Ito, who now runs the Media Lab at MIT, who used to be uh, a massively successful entrepreneur in Japan, and who was on the board of Six Apart. And I saw what was on his screen, and I sat down and I said, I want that. And so that's what got me onto uh, TypePad. And I have not yet found a good reason to switch. I think that blogging every single day is something I would proudly, happily pay extra for the privilege of doing, even if no one read my blog. Blogging every day clarifies my thoughts. It helps me notice things. And it is one of the most important practices of my profession. And so do you block off time in your calendar? Like, How do you make sure you do it every day? There's a lot of people that, that struggle with doing it once a week or once a month. So here's 
my thesis. Uh, making decisions takes time and energy. And if you can make a decision once, then the question isn't, should I do it? It's, what will I do? So if you make the decision once to be a vegan, then you don't have to have a discussion with yourself every single night about whether to have a hamburger or not. And if you make a decision uh, to blog every single day, then the only discussion I have to have with myself is, what's the best blog I can do? Not, should I do a blog? As, as Lauren Michaels has possibly said, Saturday Night Live doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. <laughs> uh, I love that. So for people, there's a lot of people that say, you know, it's how do I get started? I don't have the time. I don't know what to write about. How, any tips or tricks for those folks? We hear that a lot from people. Sure. Well, that's easy. First, come to me after you've stopped watching television or surfing the Internet. Because if you're not doing either of those things, I'm willing to listen to the fact that you don't have time. But everybody has time to speak. Everyone has time to say good morning. Everyone has time to talk about how their day went. So if you write like you talk, all you have to do is write down that thing you would have said. And it literally takes 90 seconds if you want it to. So my point is that it's not that you don't have time. It's that you are understandably afraid. And... The lizard brain is making a whole bunch of excuses as to why you can't do it right now. So the, the challenge is then, how do we deal with that? Well, the first thing is you cannot make that fear go away. You can dance with it, though. And dancing with the fear is what emotional labor is. It's the work of making unique, original art. Now, the best tip I can give you is this. Start a blog. It takes two minutes to set up a blog. I don't care what platform you use. Start a blog and don't put your name on it. And just blog every day to a blog without your name on it. Now, what have you got to lose? Suddenly, the lizard brain, Pressfield's resistance, will stop yelling at you because it realizes that you can't possibly get in trouble for what you're doing. And after you've done it 30 days, 40 days, 50 days in a row, and it's a habit and you realize it's not fatal, then you can either put your name on it start again on another blog, or just keep going anonymously. But the, the generosity to oneself, being able to write down what you think, your opinion, your prediction, is huge. And I think everyone ought to get in the habit. Now, some of your posts are, you know, five, six paragraphs, like can be pretty long. Some of them can be extremely short, two sentences. It seems like the conventional advice is, you know, 250 words or whatever, this certain length for every single blog post. And, you, and you're obviously uh, d don't conform to that. Tell, talk to us about why and how do you think about the, the sort of what goes into a blog post and how long or short it should be? Okay, so here's the best advice, which is ignore all advice. Um, that's self-referential, but true. Uh, I was told that because my blog didn't have comments, it wasn't a blog. How dare I? I was told that because uh, my blog was on a platform that wasn't owned by me, it wasn't a blog. How dare I? I was told this by people, by the way, who now have no comments on what they do and are posting on Medium. So advice is worth ignoring. What I try to do with my posts is... Uh, Tell people who read my blog things that they might already know, but do it in a way that profits them to share it with someone else. So they can say to someone else, see, this is what I was talking about. Or, wow, we should be looking at this problem this way. And I do my best to make it as short 
as possible, but no shorter. And so you feel like the goal for each one of your posts is to make your readers feel smart, either because they shared it with someone or because it helped them think about something new. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think smart is part of it. I think it also helps us feel connected. I think it also uh, feels like someone gave you something and that being able to receive something of value either encourages you to pass on something of value to someone else, which furthers the community, or it enables you to bring more joy to your work. Because what we know is that in environments of abundance, people are way more likely to be creative and generous. Whereas when we panic and we have environments where we say, I don't have enough, people tend to get secretive and selfish. And you know, we saw this during the great Google land grab of the last five or 10 years, where everyone's thinking, well, if I move up, someone has to move down in the rankings. And I don't think we have to live in a world of rankings because it's more horizontal than that now. And if I can contribute to this community, that's enough for me. I don't need anything back from them. Let's talk a little bit about Twitter because your strategy there also sort of uh, ignores all the conventional wisdom. You have, there's, you know, this is Seth's blog, his Twitter handle, right? And it tweets links to your blog articles and like that's it. Like there's that's no it. conversation, there's no replies, there's no following your followers back, there's none of this, there's nothing, there's no interaction, there's no engagement. You know, I mean, that violates pretty much every rule all the, you know, quote unquote social media gurus would say that you should do on, you know, for social. What, talk to us about that. Well, I don't actively use Twitter on purpose. I think that the vast majority of people who use Twitter are epically wasting their time. <laughs> and there are a whole bunch of reasons why I think that. But in my case, it was simple, which is I knew what I needed to do to be an average, mediocre user of Twitter. And I saw no point in that. If you're going to use Twitter, you should be an exceptional Twitter user. You should be the, the singular one, the one that people point to, the one that people have to interact with. And I knew that to do that, I would have to stop doing something else. And when I thought about the things that I'd have to stop doing, I didn't want to give up any of them. I didn't want to become mediocre at blogging or mediocre at my next whatever, just so I could be great at entertaining large numbers of anonymous people on an asymmetrical platform where I couldn't possibly keep up with the promise of interaction, right? That, you know, Chris Brogan has done a magical job of interacting on Twitter, but even he can't scale, right? That once there's 100,000 people who think it's a telephone, how can you possibly honor the promise of, if you message me, I'll message you back? I, I mean, I can't even do that in email, and that's a lot uh, more closed than the open space of Twitter. So what, what I say to other people, because that, that's what I said to myself, what I say to other people is, if you hadn't tweeted, and that, let's say you're spending 20 minutes a day on Twitter for a year, if you hadn't spent 100 hours on Twitter last year, um, what would you have missed? And in return, what could you have done with that 100 hours? Because what we have to decide is, is breaking news? Is this urgency of the moment? Did you see that tweet? How much is that actually worth to be first and in sync? And my favorite thing to be annoyed at, as long as I'm ranting here, is the live tweeting of public events. 
because I have never met a human being who said, oh, I read all the live tweets. It was just like being there. <laughs> right? So everyone's being Jimmy Olsen and Clark Kent and tweeting what's going on without listening to what's going on. And the recipient isn't benefiting. The Twittering person isn't benefiting. I wish we could just be present with each other for 45 minutes, look each other in the eye, find some change, find some shared joy. And then, if you want to share an emotion, go ahead. That was the original intent of Twitter. Tell us you're walking into the room. Tell us when you left. But we don't need to know every single minute because if you're reporting it, you're probably not also experiencing it. Oh, so, uh, sorry. I was just finishing a tweet there. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with that, especially you know, the live events thing. I think if there's... If there's a good summary, I think, or maybe uh, a couple like key, really interesting quotes or things like that, or maybe you know you're at a conference or something, you've been there all day, and you kind of say, "Hmm, like this is an interesting thought that I had inspired by this conference." I think stuff like that can be valuable. But I think you're totally right. The sort of the line by line, um, you know, you're not, you just can't fit enough into those messages to really convey any of the the depth of what's happening at the events. I um, yeah, I think that Periscope is a fundamental game changer. I think that Periscope is going to be used in a whole different way, and we have no idea how it's going to go down, but it's going to be something that people are going to remember a year or two years from now as a, a game changer. Tell us more about that. Well, Periscope is this idea that you can hold up your phone and live stream whatever you are looking at or live stream yourself. Ah, okay. So similar to, uh, I think a lot of, uh, Meerkat is another one that I think is yeah. somewhat similar. Meer and back years ago, I was using this thing called Quick QIK, yeah. which I think went under, yeah. Yeah, Meerkat's going to be toast because Periscope's higher resolution, lower latency, and it's official. So it's unclear why anyone would use the number two brand. But I might be wrong. I'm all often wrong. But either way, what we end up with is this medium where now we're broadcasting in the way that humans like to broadcast, which is not lots of abbreviations and ellipses, but just talking. And so we've given everyone now a much more profound platform, the challenge is going to be human beings are going to discover you can scan 100 tweets, but you can't scan a Periscope video because it won't go any faster than it's going. Right, right. And so the number that you can uh, consume is going to be smaller. But I think we're going to see, I mean, when you hear about it, the first thing you think of is like everything in tech, it's going to start with porn, but it won't be porn for long. It's going to go to human beings who want to say, uh, nuggets of insight, maybe in places that are unusual, to their followers of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. It's hard for many people to have a million followers, but if you had a million people watching your video, you'd be as big as a lot of cable TV shows. Yeah, no, uh, bigger than many cable TV shows, I think. There's so many channels on cable now, and a lot of those shows have kind of a more niche following. Uh, I think yeah. you're, you're totally right. There's a huge opportunity there. I mean, the, the, all these technologies, I think, provide the ability for anyone to be their own sort of media platform. And that doesn't mean you need giant audiences like we talked about earlier, but you know, it gives you an opportunity to have a direct connection as opposed to going through some sort of other intermediary, which I think is quite interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry for that rant, uh, but 
If no, we love rants if, on the show. No, they're if, fantastic. If Twitter, if Twitter is working for someone, I sure hope they don't stop just because I said what I said. Because if it's working for you, by all means, go for it. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, they're doing something right over there. Uh, and we, I, I think they've got some potential. But I think it's very interesting observations. And uh, I believe we've actually got the founder of Meerkat coming on uh, to record a show with us uh, pretty soon. So we'll see what he has to say, too. But I think it's your point about the official platform is quite interesting, right? It's sort of the... Um, you know, if it's already built into Twitter and their platform and it's kind of the official one, I think that that's, that's quite interesting. Tell us now, um, do you have any good ghost stories for us? Um, I, ha I wrote a ghost story that's famous in its own way and um, has scared uh, thousands of people to the point where they almost needed hospitalization. But <laughs> I am not able to tell this ghost story on a podcast. I apologize. That's totally fine. So, so is this true? This is a little one of the things you see on Wikipedia, which is usually correct, but occasionally some other things, sort of some lore kind of slips into Wikipedia, that you were growing up, you were a uh, canoe instructor at a camp, and you still frequent that camp to tell ghost stories. Is that true? So um, wooden canoes were... Uh, the number one form of transport in Canada until the 1940s, more than cars. And uh, the canoe that you visualize when you think of a canoe was, is a two-person vehicle. A guy named Omer Stringer invented from scratch the idea of paddling in the canoe by yourself uh, and, make, and doing tricks, like figure skating tricks, uh, circles and back circles and things like that. And he taught uh, hundreds of people, one of whom taught me. And so my lineage goes straight back to Omer, and I taught up in Canada this kind of canoeing. I put up a video about it. If you type Seth Godin canoe into your favorite search engine, it's the first match. And um, I think it's unbelievably powerful to teach a nine-year-old how to pilot a 16-foot-long vehicle by themselves. It's the first time they've ever had that kind of responsibility and they don't no nine-year-old thinks they can do it. And when you can show a kid what is possible and then they do it, I find that addictive and it's transformative to that person for a long time to come. So I go back as often as Joanne, the woman who runs the camp, invites me. And one of the ways uh, that I pay my rent when I'm up there is I tell the story of David Curhan, the serial murderer of Algonquin Park. I can think of no better place to end the show than right there. So Seth, thanks a ton for coming on. It was definitely great to have you. Uh, real pleasure. Thank you for the work you do. It's a pleasure to talk. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. Uh, if you liked it, we'd love to get a review on iTunes. And if you want to chat about this episode, we have a discussion group set up on inbound.org. That's inbound.org slash growth. Uh, and thanks again for joining us, and we hope you listen to the next show as well. Thanks. I think it's probably good. I'm looking at Dave in the booth, and he's, uh, it sounds good to me. Can you hear it okay, Dave? So, Dave, two cannibals are eating a clown, and one <laughs> says to the other, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> Uh, uh, Dave is laughing in the booth. We can't hear him, but we can see him. Uh, so I think, I think that's, I mean, it sounds good to me. It sounds good to you, Dave. Okay, cool. And is his level okay? He sounds a little quieter than I do, but that's, I know sometimes for me, it's a little different. Dave, Dave says, I don't know how, you do this all the time, Seth, but I don't know how close you are to your microphone, but we typically find if you get a little closer, sometimes it's slightly better, but. Well, if I was any ah. closer, I would have to worry about 
it having vitamins in it. So oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's that, perfect, that, right? What that whatever you just did right there, I think that's perfect. Good. I think okay. we're super happy with that. I tend to get more excited as as we go. In. I know that me too. It's always hard to do the level check early on because then, as you start to get into something, the the volume increases.